0: Welcome to the Fierce Soul Podcast, focusing on empowerment, embodiment and self-expression. I'm your host Jordan Ray and I chat with thought leaders and inspirational individuals in free-flowing, unfiltered conversation intended to empower you to love yourself fiercely, live authentically and soulfully. Welcome back to another... Fear Soul episode. And this week, I am joined by the lovely Melanie Griffiths. Melanie describes herself as a movement maven, cancer thriver, life adventurer, and integrity enthusiast. So Melanie, over to you to explain what that means (laughs) in in real terms. (laughs)
1: Well, it started off with you asking me what, how to introduce myself. And I thought, I have no idea. So we pulled the um, bio off the Facebook. But what I've realized over the years is that I'm not one thing. And I've, I'm many things. And I have a background in dance, a lot of training and energy work and healing. And um, and have kind of built on that through having had cancer and being given six months to live by doctors if I did nothing medically. I did nothing medically and then I healed myself holistically. And that was kind of the pinnacle moment for me and sort of, as I now see it, bringing together things that had come from childhood, threaded its way through through life and then other learnings that I'd gained along the way, bringing them together to, to heal myself and then sending it sort of out into the world to help other people. So now, if I'm thinking about my life, it's to do everything I want to do and enjoy my life to the fullest and be the best person I can be, um, you know, thriving and serving my health and well-being first. And then with the rest of the world, it's to support other people doing the same thing. I was working with someone recently in in energy work. So I do healing and I would call it clairvoyant energy work as opposed to sort of straight readings. And I was thinking about what, what is it that I do? And I realized that whatever I'm doing, whatever medium is to help people shine so that they shine from, from the inside out, they become all bright and shiny and they get to enjoy that. And then of course, anyone around them gets to bask in that light.
0: So I was going to say, I love that to help people shine, but I also love that you said to serve yourself first. Yeah and for your own health and well-being first. Because I think so often, whether it's coaches or healers, whether you are serving as a career or serving just as a person, you know, your family, especially anyone that's got children or fur babies or whatever they might be, I think it's just so easy to put everybody else first and yourself at the back of the queue.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was cancer that really taught me that that lesson. I think, you know, even now people people will say it when I tell a the story, they'll, they'll drop into a sense of sympathy. And for me, it was totally a different experience. It was actually the greatest gift um, possibly that I will ever have because it allowed me to really tune into myself in depth and turn my life around, which if I hadn't had that, I don't know if that would have happened. I could have possibly stayed where I was at that point in my life, not really living properly and doing what I loved, benefiting myself and anyone else, just kind of marking time, really. So cancer gave me a big kick up the backside, you know, and it sort of said to me, well, (laughs) what do you want here? Do you want to live and thrive or sort of waste away? And, And because it was so extreme, and with the diagnosis, and I stepped away from the medical profession to heal myself, it was, um, I think it, it it kind of shunted me into a state that I'd never been in before, because suddenly I had this permission to bring in absolutely ruthless boundaries, talking about boundaries and serving yourself first, absolutely ruthless, and I was always someone that was quite passive and, um, and suppressive, and as I went on this journey of self-healing, I began to realize how much I'd suppressed and where in different parts of my body I'd been carrying it. Um, and that in order to, to actually live through this, if I was going to survive, I had to like suddenly upgrade or up-level really, really quickly for that to happen. It was like, right, okay. So I was absolutely ruthless and I upset a lot of people. But I didn't have time to worry about it. I was like, well, I can either worry about your ego or I can live. (laughs) And it was, there were times when it was that clear. It was that clear. So I'm not saying you should get a life-threatening illness. (laughs) uh,
0: Did a lot for me. Well, no, actually, I was thinking, obviously, my last couple of years have been certainly for the healing and needing to find ways to work around my own healing and recovery yes I wouldn't want anyone to, to have to be in this position to get to that point mine wasn't like you said life-threatening but it was the lesson of I knew I needed to get that balance in my life for me it was between work and everything else and the pressure of work and yeah something through through that pebble in the mix and just went well now's the time and um, you haven't decided and you haven't done it yourself. So here you go. We're going to take it for you. And you've got to learn how to, to balance and not be running on stress and not be running on all of that crazy chemicals that are whizzing around your body. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I think it's something that, I think the COVID, the COVID thing, okay, it threw everybody into that mix to look at that for themselves. Some people looked at it, carried the information, went with it. Other people looked at it, went, no, I'm just going to go back to where I was before. But I think um, I think over time, what I continually see, and particularly with myself, but also anyone I work with, if we don't listen, if we don't listen to the niggles when they're small, they get louder and louder and louder until it becomes something so disabling, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. We can't continue, we have to pay attention. So one of the things that came out of that extreme experience with cancer and coming out the other side was, I want to pay attention earlier. I want to pick up on the signs earlier before it gets to what I call sort of that that crescendo, that point, that breaking point. And so after the initial, it took me about four years I'm just thinking, what happened? I got the diagnosis. I was in another country. I had a whole other life. I spent a week sitting in meditation, really, after I got the diagnosis. And I didn't speak to anyone. And I just kind of drifted in and out of meditation a week. And I had that space to be able to do that. And I came out of this, this week and I went, I know two things. I need to get out of this marriage. I was married at the time. And I need to go back to the UK. And that's what I did. I literally took those two pieces, and I moved back in with my parents at 32, which is an interesting experience. Love you, mum and dad, and I really do. They were amazing, and but it was a hard, it was hard, it was hard for all of us. But I thought, I'm doing this. I don't know. And when I embarked on this journey, and this is something that often comes up when people, I get lots of people contacting me about cancer or friends of friends. People say, oh, "Can I give your number to someone else who's got?" cancer and I think everybody is looking for a result they're looking they're looking for hope and they're looking for a result now when I embarked on my healing I actually didn't have any idea if I was going to survive or not that wasn't why I did it I was in this I was in a situation where I was like I cannot live like this anymore and and what was being offered to me in terms of the radical hysterectomy and tell me if there's anything that you don't want me to
0: share (laughs) I (laughs) I know I am fine. What we will make sure is at the beginning that <laughs> that we might have a bit of a graphic warning.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the the recommended um, procedure at the time was a radical hysterectomy, radiation of the ovaries, removal of the lymph nodes. And I decided that I didn't want any of that. I didn't want my body messed with. And so that's why I embarked on this process of because at this point in my life, I'd done training out in California at a place called the Berkeley Psychic Institute, where I'd learned a lot about the mind-body connection and self-healing. And so when this diagnosis happened, it felt like showtime. It was like, okay, everything I know, I now get to put into practice to see if it works. Let's use myself as the science experiment and that's what happened and so I embarked on it not not actually knowing which where things would go but I just knew I was committed to my own healing and if my own healing meant I was passing from this body on then so be it so I didn't I didn't come at it from that what I call that western medical perspective of fix the problem and there is a place for that there is absolutely a place for that but for me, at that time in that situation, there wasn't, and and it, it and I and I've also learned it's a very unique process healing, and what works for one person isn't going to work for someone else. So someone else in the same position might choose the conventional medicine route, and that is exactly what they need for themselves. So it yeah, it's knowing all of that. So I embarked on this process, not not knowing where things were going to go. And it was about four years in, and I'd done all kinds of things at this point. I'd journaled, meditated, taken up running, which was a a massive part of my recovery, actually. I'd never been a runner. Um, And gone back to dance, which I hadn't been doing at that point. Worked on family relationships, dug deep into my own psyche, followed every intuition that came up, um, had a shift in diet, but only really for the first Six months, my diet was pretty good. But in order to sort of deal with any tumors that may have been floating around in there that I didn't know about, I was on a very, very strict vegan diet for six months, which actually doesn't suit my system at all. So um, I have very controversial foods, very controversial views on food (laughs) and eating, um, which not everybody will like. But I don't believe everybody should be vegan. I think it's got to be
0: whatever works for you and whatever works for your body and also whatever works for where you are in your life. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And that changes over time as well. So I went on this very strict diet for six months, which I hated because in my 20s, I'd done a lot of healing from disordered eating patterns, which had come from body image issues, having grown up doing ballet and yeah. so the last thing my system wanted at that point was another diet and uh but i did it i did it for the first 6 months and then i worked uh, there was um I, I was guided to various situations books healers people and i worked with someone who said okay i think you can int- reintroduce meat into your diet which i did at that point after 6 months and my body was so much happier um and so I did all of this over four years. And then one morning I woke up and went, oh, it's time to it's time to get a, a smear test because it was cervical, uh, the cancer. And I thought, okay, let's go with that. So I went to the local doctors at the time, hadn't had any interaction with them about my health. So they didn't have any of the history. And as the diagnosis had happened in another country, I didn't carry my medical records with me. And I am someone that, fully subscribes to the belief that your body is your own property it is not the property of the medical profession so you get to decide what you do with it um which may upset people but tough (laughs) sorry sorry I think yeah you'd be and and I also believe when you get anything going on you have to become the expert you have to
0: become the expert as to what works for you so I'm just going to quickly say absolutely and I think Part of that decision-making, as you said before, the the medical approach for some people with cancer would be absolutely what they need. And I think that is part of our decision-making is to get informed. Yes. Get informed about the options and then make the decision that's right for you. If that's medical routes, great. If that's alternative routes, great. And if, if that's avoidance, well, that's your decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think probably what down the line would be the best place would be for the holistic and the conventional medicines to meet in the middle and work together that would be the best marriage because they both have place so I went and I had a smear test done and it came back clear
0: and I was like oh my god this stuff works And you spoke about obviously moving back and moving back in with your parents and how great your parents were but one of the things I was curious about was the people the people that were around you that were close to you how did they feel about you going down oh, there
1: oh so interesting so i had lost touch with a lot of people when i went to the states so this is 25 years ago we didn't have the we just about had the internet i think
0: yeah uh, not even not even properly but yes not even
1: properly, <laughs> yeah um we i remember still writing letters and um we didn't have mobile phones so it was quite easy to lose touch with people because you didn't have that that continual connection so I'd lost touch with people so when I came back I didn't resume previous friendships really there were a few people there's a few close friends that I got in touch with I can think of three and I made the decision that first year I didn't want to see anybody I didn't want anything to do um and all three of these people amazing still in my life um and were able to, whether it was conscious or unconscious on their part, I don't know, able to hold space for that. Because I knew I needed... Hi, dogs. <laughs> I, I knew that I needed to have a clear head, energy field, sort of unpainted from anyone else's thoughts, sympathy, perspectives on what I was doing. I just knew I needed to kind of distance myself from that. And, and so that's what I did, definitely that first year. I didn't want to have to explain myself. So that was where I was. And then I wasn't really close to family at the time. My, I think my mum really struggled with things. And she wanted to, I would describe myself as an introvert and her as an extrovert. I would say, when I process, I'm like a cat. If something goes awry with me, I withdraw inside and and process in my own time and space. She is the opposite. She needs to go and talk to all her friends about everything. And I remember having this conversation with her. I don't know if she remembers this. But I forbade her from gossiping about my cancer. I don't think. I think she ignored me. Uh, I don't. Know. I don't know. So we have very different ways of processing. So yes, I th- and they and I think they. But my dad, as well, I think they both struggled and neither were particularly adept at the time with emotional expressing. And particularly my dad, I remember very early on coming back and we weren't discussing my cancer, but he was getting very angry with how the double glazer was being installed. That sort of misplaced. And I remember thinking, oh, I think that's, but I was kind of too busy. It was like, actually, I just need the rest of the world to go away while I sort myself out. That was where I was. I was like, you know what? You're not my problem, because if you become my problem, I might not survive. This is the best chance I've got. I've got to do this. And I was fortunate that, you know, I, hadn't, I didn't have children. I had, the, I had the space in my life to be able to, to be that self-centered but I do think it's a role model on kind of how we should be thinking, really, because without looking after ourselves first, we've got nothing to give anyone else anyway.
0: It's that fill up your own cup and oxygen mask on first, and any other metaphor and analogy you can think of. Exactly,
1: and then um, other family members a bit more distant. I wasn't close to. Um, there were de- there were definitely some areas within family relationships I had to I had to work on. There was some stuff that needed healing there. I've since reconnected with some old school friends that I didn't get back in touch with when I was when I first came back and one of them I had a conversation with and she she said you know was it us had it something to do and I said no I said I just knew I I needed deep space I needed to actually be really really ruthless with my with my time and energy where I put myself and you do something like that some people can't cope with it you know they Need to step away. It doesn't feel right to them. And other people are like, "Okay, that's fine. That's what you need to do. Do
0: that." Yeah. Well, and I think the diagnosis in itself, as well, can bring up so much for other people that is nothing to do with you as the yeah. individual. The C word. That's what I call the C word. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah. I think everyone's got a connection, whether it's friends, family, even if they haven't had their own experience. Everyone's got their own story. Yeah, And everyone's got their own opinion of how you should address it and whether you should do the medical route or the alternative. Or I think in a lot of ways, having not been there and not had the that experience of using your words, being a cancer thriver. It's a very hard one to think about how I would need to respond.
1: Yeah. And you probably wouldn't know until you're in the position, because I think it's that level of primal survival that brings out your true colours. And I think sometimes, whether we want to or not, because it's sort of social etiquette, we dilute ourselves a little bit. Even when we're working on being our true selves, we still dilute a bit. We can't go swearing all over the place at times, even if we want to.
0: I don't know. I think I think I'd be sectioned. <laughs> Ah, Okay. well, I I was going to say one of the the way you were talking and obviously getting back to everything you wanted to do. One of the programmes I love and I know it's a TV programme and entertainment, but it's the Big C. Oh, I love that. And I do love that she is herself and she just goes with everything she wants to do. But you're right. There are (laughs) in reality, there are probably times that people would seriously question.
1: (laughs) Well, it's really interesting because. Uh, you bring up a really good point when I had cancer and I was in that kind of container of healing I had no trouble being absolutely ruthless with my boundaries now after I got the clear smear and in the next few years as I was reintegrating back into life and recreate rebuilding really because I literally ripped up the floorboards of who I thought I was and rebuilt that's a powerful that is what happened so then as I was kind of reintegrating and putting bits and pieces in the boundaries slipped, you know, I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't say regressed, but I kind of slid back into places that I'd been in before, I allowed behavior to occur around me that I wasn't okay with. And so it was almost like I had to learn it again, but from a different state. So when I was in that heightened sense of survival, I had permission to go, kind of thing, to whatever I felt like doing that to. But as soon as that kind of heightened level of survival had calmed down a bit and settled and I was into more of a maintenance level of life, then (laughs) then I started to go, what's going on here? (laughs) I started to do, and it's taken, I would say, yeah, probably a good 15 years of kind of uncovering various layers of all of that to rebuild the system in a foundational way, I think, where you make those changes and they stay. So it's like I had to make some changes really quickly, you know, almost like a patch-up job on the wall sort of thing. <laughs> in in order to 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 survive to heal, and then I had to go back in and go right, okay, now now let's kind of do some more digging over there because there's some deeper deeper issues there that are keeping me off off track off kilter a bit. I don't know if that's a really good way of explaining it. Literally as I'm talking, I'm
0: going, I'm not quite sure where I'm going here. <laughs> well, the way that I guess I heard it and given that I love my images, was that we have those those layers and actually when our thinking of the pandemic for all of us for a moment, in those initial periods where we were all in survival mode and we all responded, the majority responded in very similar ways and as you said, There was a lot of reflection on life and a lot of reflection on friends and family and work because everything was so out of kilter and out of sync for everybody. And I don't know about you, but how much I saw about we cannot go back to where we were. This is the perfect time to jump in. We can't go back to where we were. And then actually, as that started to ease and that initial survival mode eased, actually so much just slipped back to how it was and not everybody has held on to those initial
1: points and that's it it can take time to embed that shift
0: yeah and of course course some of it's our physiology as well that when we're in our survival modes our nervous system goes into survival mode so things that potentially didn't feel safe before like shutting people out holding your energy is now part of survival but of course as that then relaxes and the nervous system expands again because it doesn't need to be in that yeah. survival fight flight mode of course it's not necessarily holding on to everything that it had in that moment and it's back expanded and back opening up to that space and that's the bit of the learning not just the integration but that relearning yeah a new way that you choose to be
1: Yes, exactly. I think given the way society is, which is fast paced and relatively disposable, people expect answers like that, and then they expect them to stick. And, and, I, and I get this a lot around healing. And I, when I see people out there touting this healing and that healing, and you and I had this conversation I think last week about my experience of healing is it's not pretty. It's quite unnerving. And you've got to be quite not faint of heart to be able to go through it. And I think that there is a perception of healing that gets put out there that, you know, it's sort of like, let's make everything better, which is really just the kind of conventional Western medicine idea applied to holistic ways of being.
0: Yeah. In my mind, that's how I see it. I'm like, well, hold on, that's just the same as that, but you're doing it without drugs. <laughs> and, and I think with healing, there can be transformational shifts. I think there can be changes that occur overnight so I'm not knocking the people that say you you know you can have this but I think what it dismisses is that ongoing integration period because yes you can transform in the moment yes you can have that mindset flip or release whatever it is from your body whatever your healing process is but it's then integrating that into your everyday life with everything else that's going on.
1: I know. And I, and again, I, I think it's an individual thing as well. And, and I know what I've experienced is whenever I have made those energetic shifts, it's taken a lot longer to go through my physical body and into the rest of life, as you're saying, than one would first think. And sometimes it requires constant attention to repatterning, um, constant attention to how I'm holding my body, if it's a physical thing or something. So, yeah, I th- I think it, I know I'm just pondering, pondering the point there.
0: We already know that we have to make so much more effort when it comes to those positive thoughts than the negative that we, yeah. so, you know, we can take in one negative thought and it takes, you know, those 15 positive. Well, if we're trying to shift those really big underlying, again, whether it's beliefs or patterns or yeah. whatever, the healing is it's going to take those that time it's going to take that sense of as you've mentioned how it feels in your body yeah. how you embody it how you bring it in
1: yeah and if you think about it we've had uh, at least many decades in this life of integrating what didn't work and if you believe in past lives then it goes even beyond that you know and you're carrying the blueprint of your soul through all of that and so when people expect change like that I think
0: well, good luck with that and also we're back into this western process where being academic being successful is very linear it's very patriarchal it's got a very particular sense to it and that as we know, things like the arts aren't as well funded, but would allow a young person at school to express themselves and to find ways of processing. So I'm not talking therapy in its own way. But if you've got a young person that's struggling and struggling at school and struggling with their emotions, actually, alongside therapy, having all those alternative ways of being able to heal and being able to process emotion it just opens doors that I don't think we give value to
1: and also I'm just thinking as you're talking if things were more available more a wider variety of things would that person have those problems with their emotions in the first place because they may be being guided from an earlier point in time in a way that suits their system and so there's no problem
0: but it was moving me on to think about, obviously you were saying you used to dance ballet. Yes. And then it was, the dance came back as part of your yeah, healing. Yeah. But I'm fully aware that the dance you now do is not ballet. So how did that dance and movement support your healing and your your journey?
1: Ah, oh, that was amazing. It was, a, I think it's always been a thread through my life. I now realise I was a fidgety child. And in order to sit me to sort of I don't know, settle me or something. My mum put me in tumble tots classes and that was where I was in my element. And and then from there, I went into, at the time, we only had available, I think, ballet classes back then. And then tap and modern and then slightly later jazz. But that was it. That was, those were the options. Um, I just, I'm just going to digress for a minute because I just remember my, probably not my first ballet, maybe my second ballet teacher in trousers, uh, chunky high heels, because it was the 70s, smoking, <laughs> walking around, smoking. <laughs> I just had that. I just remember that. It's like, yeah, it wasn't really a good start. And she was very thin. So I got to 18, 16, 18, and I felt really disillusioned with the world of movement that I was in. I found the technical side of it quite stressful the pressure to perform even more stressful I I've come to see myself as a reluctant performer I don't think I really enjoy that space um I've done it a lot I can do it I'm still doing it but I don't think it's my favorite place to be in movement I've realized and I think some people are born to perform you can see it you can see it in them they come alive or they or they can't, they don't exist outside of it almost. So I reached that point and I just at the point where my friends were going to stage school, I kind of felt this halt in my step. And I ended up going off in a different direction entirely. And I went, I did business and then I went to university and I did business. And then unsettled and restless and I went traveling, basically. And so I found myself out in California. Which is, yeah, my spiritual home. So when I landed in my 20s, I, la- I think I made it to without going into the massive story of my traveling journey, which is probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> like when I, mean, I found myself in San Francisco on my birthday, standing on the hills, I remember thinking, I feel like I've come home. And I'd never had that feeling ever before that point. And that's, and then I ended up staying out there for seven years. And it was in that time that I came across a system called the NIA technique, which had risen out of, I think it was originally Southern California. In the late 70s, Debbie and Carlos Rosses were the founders. And Debbie had had the successful aerobics studio, where they were discovering they were getting injured. And so... So they took their shoes off, basically. They came in, started coming into classes, took their shoes off. Their, their clients went a, well because they were like, what well, because this was the late 70s, I think, at this point. And then they realised they wanted to explore other movement forms. So they went and explored. I think there's nine movement forms in all. I am getting to a point. And they, Nia was born, which was basically a hybrid of martial arts, dance arts and healing arts. So you had things like yoga, Feldenkrais, jazz dance modern dance taekwondo aikido tai chi they went and studied all these things and then they created this near system so fast forward several years me in california at this point i've had my first near-death experience which i haven't even talked about which uh is menstrual hemorrhaging related so flash warning anyone who isn't keen on blood <laughs> i won't go too far down but i uh, basically after a years of having horrendous periods had one that put me in er in um oakland in california that i was rushed through er i was rushed through a ward of stab victims and because it was quite a rough that's how much blood loss i was i was so close to going and um and i was given a transfusion etc and then only let out the next day if i could walk in a straight line so uh, i know like somebody that's, dr- that's, that's one way of deciding you can go <laughs> I know, I know. They basically said to me, and this is all part of what put me squarely on the path of which I'm gonna say this because I'm gonna I am running a program next year called Your Health Is in Your Hands. But put me squarely on the path of your health is in your hands. When this the surgeon or, or somebody high up came and sat down the next morning and said to me, Now, we don't know what's going on with your body. Uh we think it might be hormonal or something. And that was it. That's what I was left with and sent me out. And prior to that, I had even more worse. I had a doctor in the UK, which I could remember his name because I quite happily name and shame him at this point. Had a doctor in the UK accused me of making it up in my head. Mm-hmm. And I was I am going to get graphic now. So if anybody doesn't like blood. I was losing so much blood at this point, I would be up at three in the morning, and I'd have to, I'd have to soak the bed sheets; They were covered. So this was at age 18. The medical doctor, which is why I haven't had a lot of faith in the system, literally said to me, it's all in your head. And I thought, you want to come around at three in the morning? So
0: I was going to quickly say, I think that's a massive issue. There's a lot of that response that actually it's yeah. the, the mental health the emotional health that you need I think especially again we're back as women I think so often there are these times where actually our physiology isn't fully understood in some ways and we do end up with it coming back as it's all in your head I mean great gaslighting if you're looking at it from that way
1: yeah oh yeah And am back then so 18 you know that's well I'm trying to calculate my age now <laughs> long time ago and you know and i remember and i think this this doctor was actually i can't remember how long afterwards but he was struck off the list for drinking male doctor yeah oh yeah so fast forward i'm in california it's not a lot better and i realized my health was in my hands so this was the beginning really of my journey of going okay what's going on in here what do i need to know and understand And that is when I, as well as other things that were going on, that is when I discovered Nia. And I I still train with Nia today. I have so much to um, thank that system for. I remember a dear friend of mine out there who um, I met through the Psychic Institute and was such an amazing mentor and role model for me, was teaching. And she came in one day and she said, I'm recently trained in this. She was a dancer as well. I think you might really like it. Why don't you come along? And I did, and it was almost like breaking open something inside of me, taking me back to when I was this tot, and it brought back the joy of movement. And I went on this kind of whole healing journey at that point with with the Near Technique and, and what they did, and then I. Reached another point in time where I realized I needed to slow down. So I was still struggling with anemia, I think, and probably unstable periods. And I embarked on learning um, Qigong with an amazing martial arts school out there called the Wenwu School of Martial Arts and two amazing founders. I think she was 78, still teaching teaching Qigong and he was 84 still teaching Shaolin kung
0: Fu Mel I'm aware we have spoken so much about your healing journey your dance journey and we're still not finished and we haven't even touched on how you help people shine their light <laughs> so would you come back for part two and yes absolutely. share the rest of it yes yeah <laughs> brilliant yeah. in that case we will all look forward to hearing the rest of your journey. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Jordan. Thank you for joining me for another Fierce Soul Conversation. To find out more about me and my work, please see the links in the show notes. And of course, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. I look forward to you joining me next time.